That's a great uh, family testimony, isn't it? So really grateful that we have a privilege as a church to share with the Brown family and how God is leading them. The audio got a little quiet there, so let me say it to you loudly. You can join them in third hour in D1. So that's an invitation to all of you. And I encourage you, if, if you haven't connected with a commended missionary here at the chapel, it is our greatest privilege to be able to partner with not only what God is doing in this community as we function as a local church to the folks around here, but to be a part of how he is raising young couples, young families, older couples, older families to be a part of his work around the world. And you can invest in that financially. You can partner with them in prayer, but that's probably not going to happen if you don't get to know them. And so it's been, as Justin shared, my privilege to know them since he was in sixth grade, and now his daughter is in sixth grade. And what a joy to see God at work in them. So don't miss the opportunity to just get caught up in your life and in this community. Take the opportunity to how you can be a part of what God is doing around the globe. So if you would open your Bibles now, if you have a, <clears throat> excuse me, a Bible with you to Mark chapter two, as we're continuing to look at our Jesus encounters. But this morning we're taking a bit of a bigger broad view here at the start to show that the next section in the gospel of Mark is gonna have four parts to it, but they're all gonna be connected because in this section, Jesus has, there are four questions that mark our encounters. The first of the four questions is this. In Mark chapter two, verse 16, he is, at, excuse me, his disciples are asked, why is he, that is Jesus, eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Then in verse 18, the second question is, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but ask of Jesus, but your disciples don't fast? A third question then in verse 24, why are they doing, this is ask of Jesus about his disciples, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And then moving into chapter three, Jesus actually asks the question, and his question is this, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? Now, as you'll see, hopefully, all four of these questions have a common theme connected to them, but it's Jesus's answer, and so there's a bit of a spoiler alert here. We're gonna look at each of these questions over the next four weeks, but his answer leads to a pretty significant conclusion. The result of Jesus' answer to each of these questions results in verse 6 of chapter 3. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might do what? Destroy him. What's that tell you about what they thought of his answers? <laughs> they didn't like his answers. And we might not always be comfortable with the answers that Jesus gives to these questions. They ask, he asks, and ultimately the answers go, we can't have him around anymore. So let's look at the first question. If you have a Bible there, look at verse 13. 
It says, and he, Jesus, went out again by the seashore and all the people were coming to him and he was teaching them. So pretty normal. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Now pause there. A more familiar name to many of you would be Matthew. Levi is actually Matthew. Matthew, the tax collector, who wrote the first gospel, one of the 12 apostles. So who we're talking about here is Matthew. He saw Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. And it happened that he, Jesus, was reclining at the table in his, that's Matthew's house. And many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many of them and they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Now, who asked the question? Uh, The disciples asked the question, but they're not the ones who answer it. Jesus answers it. Hearing this, Jesus says, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. So that is the first of the four questions that will set up this series that we're simply calling Jesus Encountering Religious Practices. In this particular case, the religious practice that he is encountering is isolation. And this graphic is simply helping us understand that when we encounter Jesus, then faith fits. When we encounter Jesus, hope fits. When we encounter Jesus, love fits. But when you encounter Jesus, isolation is like a square peg in a round hole. It doesn't fit. And I named it isolation as this religious practice because what they said is, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Now, is that a question? Well, it has a question mark at the end of it. But all questions that that are posed as questions aren't really questions. If... My wife has given my kids chores to do, like clean up the kitchen while we're away, and we come back, and the kitchen has not been cleaned up. She might say, why are there still dirty dishes in the sink? That's not a question. (laughs) Right? That's a statement. There should not be dirty dishes in the sink. This is not a curiosity question. They are not going, huh, very interesting. Why is this happening? This is, a, this is a formed question, but is a stated disapproval. We don't think this should take place. What do they think should be happening? That he should be isolated from them, he should be separate from them, and he should be with the religious folks. So they are disapproving of what he is doing. So not curiosity, disapproval. That's important because Jesus is gonna answer for us the problem with this whole practice of religious isolationism. The the practice of believers saying, well, we stay away from unbelievers. If you're not a follower of Jesus, and I am a follower of Jesus, 
then we're not going to be friends. We're not going to hang out together. That was their practice. Jesus was not doing that, and they disapproved. Why? What's the problem with that? Well, the text gives us at least three reasons. First, it's contrary to the example of Jesus. What they were doing was not consistent with what Jesus was doing. It's right in the text, verse 15. What was the example of Jesus? Here it is. He was reclining at the table in his house and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Now pause for a moment. Sometimes when we come to the text, we can come and look at an historical account of the life of Jesus and simply keep it as a history lesson. That's not our goal. Our goal is to see how did Jesus encounter people so, because Christ lives in us, that when people encounter us and we encounter them, it would be like they were encountering Christ who lives in us. So it's not a small matter that what they were doing by their own practice was dramatically different than the example of Jesus. It's not a small matter if we're saying today, this morning, my example doesn't match up with the example of Jesus. We're not doing a history lesson. We're seeking to become like Christ, like Jesus, to interact with people, encounter people like they encountered him. So the first problem is when we do that, when we practice isolation from non-Christ followers, we're not looking like Jesus. Second problem, it misses the purpose for which Jesus came. It's not consistent with why he came. Again, right in the text, what it say in verse 17? I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Uh, I am with them because this is why I've come. And I can't call them if I'm not with them. So I'm with them because that's why I've come. I've come to call sinners. The second part to that is not only is it not consistent with why he came, it's not consistent with why we remain here. That's the problem with us practicing an isolation mentality. It's not why we remain here. When Jesus is with his disciples, just before he gets arrested, there's an extended, in the Gospel of John, prayer. And his prayer for his disciples is this. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Next verse. As you sent me into the world, I, have also, I also have sent them into the world. That's his prayer. Now, don't miss the simplicity of the two key points in his prayer. God, Father, I don't want you to take them out of the world. I want you to keep them in the world. I want them to be in the world as you sent me into the world. I'm sending them into the world. So I want them to engage the world. 
But as they engage the world, I don't want them to be like the world. I pray that they'll be in it, but as they're in it, they'll be sanctified, which simply means set apart, that they'll be in it, but they will be different people as they engage the world. As I came in and engaged the world, but proved to live a holy life among them, not separate from them, I want my followers to be engaged with the world, but not like it, sanctified in truth. So if we practice what is demonstrated by those who are asking Jesus the question in the text, if we practice what they practice, we're missing the reason that Jesus has kept us on the planet. Don't take them out. Pray that they'd be there, but sanctified, set apart for my purposes. Now, finally, third reason it's a problem is this. Not always, but often, it may be rooted in a foolishly inflated view of self. Separation that happens oftentimes by us and by them as church people is a result of how we see ourselves. Now, we've said it multiple times. You tell me, what, were the, what was the question that they asked the disciples? Why does he, what was the question? Why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? Well, why is he interacting with them? Why isn't he separated from them like we are? And his answer was, again, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, let's think about that answer for a moment. What is he saying when he says, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners? Why didn't he come to call the righteous? Okay, we tend to think, well, he didn't come to call the righteous because the righteous don't need him. But it's actually deeper than that. See, the scripture actually says, there is none righteous. Not even one. So that puts a whole different new idea to the thought. Why did I not come to call the righteous? Because <laughs> there weren't any. <laughs> I, I can't show up and uh, I didn't show up to call people who weren't present. I came to call who? Sinners. Why sinners? Because that's all of us. It was. When uh, I was here earlier this morning, somebody stuck their head in my mouth and said, hey, just want to say, hey, I, I know you need to get to work. And I said, well, actually, I'm already ready. I'm just hoping somebody comes. Because <laughs> that would be a bad morning when I prepare all week and then nobody shows up. The point is that, that I prepare because I believe there will be people who are here. Jesus showed up to call not righteous because there wouldn't be anybody present to call. Do you catch the irony of this? They are saying, Jesus, we disapprove with who you're hanging out with, sinners. You shouldn't be hanging out with them. And he is going, I'm hanging out with them and not with you because they know who they are and 
you don't. I can't hang out with you because you think you're righteous and you're not righteous. You just think you're righteous. I have come to call those who will admit and recognize I'm a sinner and you're not one of those. So that's why I'm eating with them, not with you. None righteous, not even one. But folks, that's often not how we see ourselves. In fact, do you know what he says right before in verse 9 of Romans 3? Are we better than they? Well, we know we're not. We just think we are. We just act like we're Are we better than they? Not at all. Not a little? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under what? Sin. We're all sinners. There are none righteous, no, not one. You understand the problem? When, when we become people who separate ourselves, the problem when actually... If you would say, I'm not sure any person who doesn't follow Jesus would call me a friend. The problem with that is, well, that's inconsistent with the example of Jesus because he had a lot of people who accused him of being a friend of sinners. It's not consistent with why we're here. And it's often rooted in a falsely, foolishly, inflated view of ourselves. We think of ourselves differently than the rest of the world. And so we separate ourselves instead of simply acknowledging, hey, only Jesus makes me righteous. I need him just like they need him. So I'm not going to separate myself from them. I'm going to be with them. I'm going to be among them. So here was for me, and maybe this will be true for you, maybe it won't. This was for me a number of years ago in studying through the Gospel of Luke. Hit chapter 15 as I was leading us as a congregation through Luke 15. And here was the sobering conviction for me. That my, if my practice is one of avoiding friendship with those who do not follow Jesus, I am more like those who hated Jesus than Jesus. And that's just a stunning, ugly reality that I had to make of myself. I didn't want to be like those who more like those who hated Jesus than Jesus. I genuinely, and I think many of you would say the same, I want to be like Jesus, but when we look specifically at this area of our life, we have adopted a practice that's more like those who hated Jesus than Jesus. And that's just hard to admit about ourselves when we think, no, we love Jesus. And I think we do, but we don't look like him very much in this area. And so, so I was studying this text and, and looking at what Jesus was saying about 
who he was and why he came and how he prayed for us, I simply wanted to ask myself, okay, what's our practice, really? What do we do? Not what do we think we should do, but what do we really do? So I divided, I tried to take this chart, I'm gonna show it to you here, of evaluating my engagement with those who are not following Jesus. So here it is, and it's in your message memo. Think of this as a target. Jesus is, of course, the bullseye. He, he sets the standard for how we are intended to be in the world, but not of the world. That we are to engage, but not be conformed. So here, here's Jesus, dead center, bullseye. Two extremes that will represent how we're not like Jesus. On one extreme, as is present in the text, is to be completely isolated from the world. I don't engage. I disapprove of any engagement with those who aren't following Jesus. On the other extreme, and this can be just as dangerous, just, if you will, much like, not like Jesus, is to be conformed to the world. You see the extreme? Relationally, either I lean towards being isolated or I lean towards I'm engaged but I'm conformed. One way or another, I tend to miss the mark. Don't take them out, sanctify them. Okay, question. Can, I'm not asking you to answer out loud in terms of how, but can you see which direction you personally would tend to be off dead center? Do you tend to be more isolated or struggle with being more conformed? That's one line. The vertical line deals with our words, how we verbally, this is how we relationally engage, how we verbally engage with the lost. Two extremes. Some of us, no words. We, we really, rarely to never, actually speak about the gospel. We'll talk about church maybe, but we rarely to ever actually speak the gospel. We have, uh, so it's not no words, like we don't ever say anything. It's that we don't, so maybe it would be more accurate to say no gospel words. Or, on the other extreme, we're full of finger-pointing and condemning words. So, this helped me as I thought, okay, the... The point that Jesus is calling us to is to engage. So am I too disengaged or am I engaged but conformed? And then as I am relating, am I silent, too silent or too condemning? Speaking the truth in love right here, engaged in love. This is Jesus. Can you, see your, can you place yourself where you fit on the vertical line? Do you prone to be too scared to speak up? Or are you that 
guy that when people see you coming, they go, ugh. Okay? There's quadrants here. You might label them differently, but I would label the person who is isolated but condemning as the classic judgmental Christian. You throw verbal hand grenades from a distance. I would label the person who is isolated and silent as, hate to say it, but irrelevant. Not engaged, no words, you're irrelevant to the gospel, to the kingdom of God on the planet. If you are lean this way, conform to the world, but still condemn, I think that's what the scripture would label the hypocrite. And if you're conformed, but you don't throw the, you don't throw condemning words, you're just silent, but conformed, I think the scripture would call you the carnal Christian. That may be a, a word that you're not familiar with. Carnal Christian is simply someone who professes to be born again, but their lifestyle is still conformed to the world. They still lie, they still cheat, they still lust, they still act like someone who hasn't been born again. They're carnal. You might label it differently. Don't get lost in the labels. My genuine goal in this was to help me and hopefully help you go, all right, how do I need to grow in my encounters with the lost? And this was genuinely helpful for him because as soon as I laid it out, I was like, well, I can see. When I first came to Christ, I was over here. I lived in the carnal quadrant. I was mostly silent, but conformed. And I had all the time as a teenager quoted to me, bad company corrupts good character. And that's true. The net result was a real push, and in a lifestyle, a moving from a conform to the world to isolate it. Uh, completely cut off every single relationship with anybody who wasn't a believer to try to pursue holiness. But in the process, I stopped engaging like Jesus had engaged. So I went from carnal to, I, I mean, I can barely stand to admit it, but to an irrelevant to the world Christ follower. Isolated, now speak up at church, but never engaged relationally and quiet. So today, Here's where I would continue. I would, I would say, by my own estimation, I could be wrong. My words, I think, are, as I do have opportunity to engage with lost folks, my words, I think, are more where 
Jesus would have me to be. But I still, quite frankly, wrestle with engaging relationally with lost folks. Not, one on, not on a limited basis, but I mean on maintaining friendship. My, my entire world tends to be, because of my work and my family, surrounded by believers. And therefore, it's difficult to, and I, I hate this, but let me say the words. Uh, it's difficult to have time to engage in the world. And I hate that because I go, that's just, I go, how'd Jesus do that? <laughs> because he was. And so here, I would say, I went from here to here to I hope I'm like, mm, in here. You have to know where your, where your story, how your story is gone and and hopefully, this is a tool that can go, here's how I need to grow. I need to be more verbal. I need to be less condemning. I need to be more engaged. I need to be less. I hope it's just really simple. This was helpful to me. I hope it's helpful to you for the purpose that you would go, Lord Jesus, grow me to be like you, either verbally or relationally. However, that, that would need to work. As you seek to grow to be like Jesus and how you engage those who are not yet Christ followers. I want to make three quick observations about Jesus's interaction in the text that we have been looking at. First, did you notice that Jesus demonstrated engagement in plurality? Jesus, it doesn't say that Jesus was just among them, it says tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, I honestly don't think Jesus said, hey, you guys would come along, hold me accountable so that I won't, I won't be swayed. But I think a lot of us need that. For a guy who says, well, I, I want to be like Jesus and Jesus didn't just hang out with other church people. He, hang out, he hung out with sinners, so uh, I'm going to start hanging out with the guys at the bar. A guy hanging out by himself with a, a number of other guys at the bar, that may spell trouble for him. So don't be foolish and swing from isolation to conformity. As I swung from conformity to isolation. So wisdom here, maybe to say, uh, I'm going to recognize I need to engage more, but not only. Jesus spent a lot of time with his disciples as well. So there's a place, no doubt, there's a place for not giving up hanging out with believers. There is the saying that I want to engage, but wisely. And for many, plurality may be wisdom. Second observation. Jesus was present 
there at Matthew's house at the invitation of a new convert. The new convert being Matthew. He's there invited. What I love about what Matthew has done is this. It doesn't say this in Mark, but this is the beauty of the harmony of the Gospels, is that Luke 5 tells us that Levi, again, that's Matthew, Matthew gave a big reception for him in his house. So he starts following Jesus, and he says, Jesus, I want you to come to my house. And then he turns around, and he says all to his tax collector buddies, hey, I want you to come to my house. And he creates a party at his house that is both those who are Jesus and his followers and those who aren't followers. And that's a great picture that we often don't replicate. I've watched my kids go, well, do I want to have my school friends or my church friends? It's kind of awkward when you have them both because they don't to talk. They don't know one another. And I thought, well, come on, don't do that. Thought, well, we do that a lot. We might have 10 people for dinner and it's either the people from the church or the people in our neighborhood. We don't generally mix the two. But the beauty, I think, of what happens here with, at Matthew's house is he's going, Jesus, I want you, and this is what and I want you guys to come, and I want you to encounter Jesus. Well, really, what if we started saying, yeah, let's, let's look for opportunities where we could invite. No, they don't know one another yet. Let's invite a few couples from work and a few couples from church. And have a Matthew party where, where folks get to interact. A couple years ago, oh, it was more than a couple. Huh, that's what you say when you get old. A couple years ago, and it was more like 10. <clears throat> we had a power-up club in our neighborhood. And one of the real joys of that, and I won't tell you all the details, but the couple in our neighborhood, uh, at the end of the week, we had a conversation with, they came down to the house and the husband gave his life to Christ on the back porch and the wife was really broken and distraught that she had never really shared her faith with her husband, that she had kind of, not kind of, she had become conformed. And so he gave his life to Christ for the first time and she recommitted her life and their home really changed. So that would have been early August. They had a tradition of having his co-workers at their house at Christmas for a big Christmas party. And he sent me an email in about November and said, hey, I still want to have that, but I, but I want it to look differently this time. And so I wonder if you and Jackie would come as well. I know you don't know anyone, but would you guys come to the house and I'm going to have my office party at the house. And I was really like, sure, that's awesome. I think that's great. And he said, here's what I want to do. And here's what he did. He wrote out his testimony. And after everybody was there, he said, hey, I know this seems a little unusual. We're just mixing. But when everybody come into this family room here, I want to share something with you. And then he shared with everybody in the room how God has changed his life that year. He, he simply, he had written it out and he read it. It was it wasn't cheesy. It wasn't awkward. He was just going, there's the best things that ever happened to me, happened to me this year, and I wanted to tell you about it. And he said, and because that's happened, I still wanted to have you over, but two things are going to be different this year. Last year, way too many of you got drunk. This year, 
No drunkenness. We're going to have drinks, but I'm watching, and I'm going to ask you to watch. Nobody gets drunk this year. Second, I'm going to start us in prayer. And of course, again, the vast majority of folks are just on church, and they're like, okay. And so he prays this just very honest, tender prayer, thanking God for the year, for his family, for his friends, for his salvation. And in the middle of the prayer, he says, and God, thank you for my wife. She is so hot. <laughs> yes, it was hilarious. Literally everybody opens their eyes and starts laughing. They think it's funny that he said it's hot. His wife is hot in prayer. I'm thinking I've been in family group for years. Nobody ever thanks God for their hot life. <laughs> now you might tonight. It was just really real. It was like very, it was touching. And so literally this Matthew party begins with prayer. By the end of the prayer, they went from laughing to genuinely tears. Like almost everybody in the room was moved at the moment. And I thought, this is just so much the way it should be. People who are engaged at work or engaged at school, engaged in their neighborhood and engaged in church, not living these various circles of relationship, but saying, I love these folks and I love these folks. And most of all, I've been changed by Jesus. I want them to meet him, but I want him to meet him by meeting others. So, hey, y'all meet y'all. That's what in South, y'all meet y'all. That's, that's real. It's not, and I'm not discouraging you, I invite you, invite them to church. But that feels a little awkward if you've never invited them into your home first. And what if you invited them into their home first and then they went, oh, oh, I met you. They'd actually see folks, friends of yours when they came here. You don't have to do it that way, but that's a Matthew party. It's simply acknowledging sometimes my worlds get separated. And I don't hate Jesus. I'm not even really embarrassed by Jesus. I've just kind of lived two different lives. And what Matthew does so well is he just brings his two lives together. I think we could do that. So let's invite him. Let him mix. And in the process, I hope, experience Jesus. That's what's happening here. Now, one final observation. Jesus concludes this. This is what they were unhappy about. It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Now, the point again is all are sick. It's just those who are sick are those who recognize I'm sick. So I don't think right now, physically, I need a doctor. I probably do, but I don't think I do. If I had a heart attack this afternoon, I'd need a doctor. 
So imagine, please just imagine. <laughs> I had a heart attack this afternoon. And they rushed me to Baptist South. Put me on the gurney, roll me in to surgery. They're prepping me, doctor comes in. I'm expecting him to get the right to work. Hey, he introduces himself and he says, hey, so what do you think about the Jaguars? Excuse me? Oh, what do you think about the draft? Uh, uh, you know, Fournette, going to be a bust or a great running back? I don't really care right now. This is, this is what I'm thinking about right now. Yeah, I, I understand. But Westbrook, what do you think? Thinks he should have went the bad character route? Or is that going to be okay? I don't really care. Right here. This is what I want you to talk about. Then my point's this. There, there is a need, and Jesus demonstrated it, to show up and to be with. But folks who are sick can talk about football with anybody. They don't want to talk about football with a physician. <laughs> Only. There's this merge that I love, obviously I love, that I love about Jesus that I just am asking the Lord to grow us in, myself included, that Jesus, he was with them, but he wasn't just with them. He was with them to cure them. A clear purpose of why I'm here. And so that's why that crosshairs, the horizontal line of relationship and the vertical line of words, we have to consider them both. Because sometimes we move from to relationally to Jesus was with them and we get with them, but then we go mum on it. We don't say anything. And at some point, the gospel has to be shared. Truth has to be declared. I'm not a huge fan of... I am Doug, you're a sinner. Would you like to believe in Jesus? I'd like to build relationship. Partly because, uh, because of my role, people are already afraid to talk to me. Uh, the preacher. So I want to establish relationship. But at some point, relationship is established and words are spoken. I'm not saying it's wrong to go not. I'm just saying I think that people are a little skeptical of words apart from relationship. But sometimes we get comfortable with relationship apart from words. And, and the physician needs to show up. But I need the physician to not just hang out with me. <laughs> I need him to help me. So the great news really for every single one of us this morning is this. That if you'll admit you're sick... That is, that you have a sin problem, Jesus can make you well. That's the great news of the gospel. But it requires you going, I admit, I have a sin problem. I need a savior. That's offensive to many. Don't be offended. Be grateful that there's a savior. Have you admitted to Jesus that you have a sin problem and ask him to save you? Have you? If not, Man, I invite you to do that this morning. Many of you would say, yeah, I have. I have great news if you have. Well, first, I meant to share. 
the scripture, the power of the scripture. The wages of sin is death, but the free, don't earn it, the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. If you have received the free gift of life through trusting in Jesus, then you've been made well. He is sending you to help the sick. And that's great news as well. That's not a burden. That's not a duty. That's an incredible privilege. You were sick. You were made well. You have the privilege, really the privilege, to engage relationally and speak words, to have relationships so that people can encounter Jesus who is alive and living in you. But CFC... I think we're a little isolated. Not all of us. Some of us conformed. I think lots of us are isolated. And when we are engaged, we're silent. We're not, we're not like it. We need to grow. That's how I need to grow. You know, I think, probably, how you need to grow. So would you ask him? Would you bow with me? Go ahead and bow. And would you tell him? First, admit where you are. Conformed or isolated? Which are you? And then with your words. Too silent? Or so condemning, not... Speech full of grace, seasoned with salt. Lord, I don't hesitate at all to acknowledge so much need to grow in this area. And so I humbly and publicly, even now in this moment, invite you grow me more like you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for the privilege of being a co-laborer. Don't want to shirk or miss the opportunity. And pray that and ask that, that you would grow us as a church corporately to this as well. We'd be more like Matthew, invitational. We'd be in to mix our worlds for the sake of the gospel. Pray for fresh and creative ideas. Pray for courage when we're tempted to shrink back. And Lord, we present these bodies that you have redeemed to be instruments in and through which you would work. Thanks for that great privilege. In Christ's name, amen. If we can pray for you, don't always want to just run by it. Genuinely, our great, one of our greatest privileges to, to pray with you. If you have questions about your own salvation, questions or concerns about something going on in your life, men and women both available for prayer. Don't hesitate to allow us to minister in that way. God bless. See you next week.